Hello and thanks for downloading the Charlie Higson and Friends podcast, which originally broadcast on Scala Radio, a station where we like to have fun with classical music. It's home to Charles Nove and Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode and me, Penny Smith. And you can find us on DAB Digital Radio, scalaradio.co.uk and on the Scala app. But enough about me. It's time to hand over to Charlie. Hello and welcome to Charlie Higson and Friends here on Scala Radio. I'm Charlie Higson and my friend tonight is someone, and we were just talking about this, apparently we first met in 1978. It is my old chum, Harry Enfield. Hello. Hello, Charlie. <laughs> it's lovely to see you, not least because, you know, we, we don't see each other that much these days. Not like. as much as we should do. No. And that happens so, with everyone. Um, this is a good chance to... To catch up. Yes. And to reminisce about old times. Yes. Now, you won't remember when you first met me. Would you like me to talk about it? Yes, go on. So, it was 1978 in, in a place called Acle, outside Norwich. Yes, halfway between Norwich and Great Yarmouth. Yes. And my best friend, uh, Ted Cummings, had a big brother who lived in a house in Acle, with uh, you, yes, with Paul Whitehouse's girlfriend at the time, Mary, and a girl called Lucy, and we came up to stay, and David's very nice to us and everything, and Mary was lovely, and Paul came and visited, and he was lovely. I can sense where this is going. Yes, you can, <laughs> don't you? And Charlie, sorry, you, sorry, and. There was a chap called Switch. Yes. And Switch had peroxide hair, was very beautiful, very thin, and was far too cool to ever say a word to us, kind of thing. And he lived with a girl. <laughs> oh, my God. So he kind of became... Uh, Switch, Charlie, became a bit of a hero. So he literally never said a word. He'd look at us. And... Uh, um, well, you see, in my He defense... played a record called... Right. Um, Born for a Purpose by Dr. Alamantado. Yes. And I remember that two days later when I got home, I went straight out and bought that record because I wanted to be more like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my defence, and, and, and shy people never accept this, I yeah. am very shy and it means that I don't always connect with people. And, and other people who aren't shy and don't know what it's like to be shy... Just say, well, no, you're just you're just rude. Oh well, I'm not saying that, Charlie, <laughs> because I just thought you were cool. Well, I'll accept cool. And I tried to sort of fashion myself upon your behaviour for a, a couple of weeks, but I can never sh shut the f word up, so it didn't work. <laughs> and here we are today. Well, I must <laughs> point out, you are um, a few years younger than. Me. Yeah, so, I don't look um, it. I've got less hair. But yes, so uh, so I had longer to to sort of make the acquaintance of girls and yes, cohabit. Co yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> you don't have to excuse your behaviour. It was wonderful. It was it was a joy to behold and envy. Well, no, I mean, it, you know, I, I I sometimes wonder, you know, if if I'd been to a different university, I think if Paul Whitehouse had been to a different university, our our careers would definitely have been. Very different. I mean, I met yes. I met Paul there in 1977, and I had bleached hair, as you say, and straight jeans, and 
immediately you start looking for the other people there who have got straight genes. Yes. And Paul was one of them. And it meant that you had the same interests. And Dave, who you mentioned, was another. Yeah, it was a sort of uniform, wasn't it? For, yeah. And, and, and For punky types. Well, it was interesting because I've said this to my kids. Um, and they say, well, what was the deal about straight jeans? Because they just assumed that everybody has always just worn straight jeans, but a few weirdos occasionally wore flares. Yeah, or fashion get... people wore flares. Well, no, but everybody wore everybody flares wore for about flares ten years. With really tight crutches so that you could see the men's bits. Yes. And you could see the, the, the sort of crack between a lady's leg. It was, they were really <laughs> horrible, and then they came out. <laughs> and, I mean, there's not, you know, just the cut of the jeans was really vile, and everybody our age wore them, except yes. for us. So if you had straight jeans, yes, it marked mm. you out as, as, as being different. But it did mean that mm. you could find your tribe. tribe. Mm. Um, and so through Paul, um, uh, well, through Dave, I guess, we got to know yes. you. And um, through another friend of mine there called Alan Davidson, I got to know Vic Reeves. Oh, really? So, so a, you know, a huge part of my... Did you not meet Vic from... Because Vic was always down the tunnel club in the... Well, that was later on, but I'd, yeah, I, I had you met him, knew him. I'd met him via Alan mm. before. So, you know, it is amazing that, you know, you go to university supposedly to study, but it's more about meeting people and making connections and no idea where these things will leave you. No. Lead you. Yes. I'd, then you were in the Hickson's, weren't you? Or you became in the Higsons. That was someone the other day was saying to me, "Have you ever been to Aberystwyth?" And I said, "Yes, I drove the Higsons to Aberystwyth University because yes, when I first started being a comic, Charlie very kindly let me drive them for sort of twenty pounds um, for a couple of days. So that added to the twenty pounds I was getting doing a gig with with Brian every other day. I mean, a couple of times a week. So you know, I could earn." Up to 50 quid a week <laughs> <laughs> with the help of Charles. Yeah, because when, because when I first got to Norwich, to the University of East Anglia, I formed a punk band with Paul. Um, the Right Hand Lovers. The Right Hand Lovers, indeed. It's an amusing name. Which, uh, <laughs> well, we were young. It's great. And it didn't, uh, the band didn't last long because Paul and most of the rest of the band were thrown out of university for not doing any work. So then mm. I, f I formed this other band, the, the Higsons. Uh, so Harry, as this mm. is a, a sorry, uh, as this is a classical music station, yes, and this show is about music. Beforehand, I had asked you just to give us some pointers on what music yes. to play. I can't remember the first sort the of music that you that you would listen to, where you were sort of aware that there was a type of music that wasn't the sort of pop music you would hear on Radio One, and you said that Ennio Morricone's soundtrack for yes. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Um, was something that yes, lit I mean, up a bulb in your head. I think so. Um, I mean, I knew hymns and things like that, but my mm. parents didn't play much music at home and didn't play the radio very much. There wasn't much music right. around. So it was more sort of at school. And I remember when Fistful of Dollars came out, I, I don't know how old I was, but it had a sort of pretty profound... You know, there were things like... Magnificent men in their flying machines. You know, you'd know these tracks. But that felt to me like a mood, a really... It changed my mood. That's the first time I felt that, rather than just a jolly song. It it was a mood... I was there. Yes. 
in that place, in that moment. And I think uh, that's, you know, when you see good opera, it's like that. If you go to a good, you know, all good classical music is like that. But that was the first time I was aware of that, I think. That's probably, if you say to someone, oh, what's your favourite film music? Ennio Morricone is very likely to come up. It was so distinctive and so different and new. And it was mixing... It was mixing orchestral music with, um, I suppose, what you would call film music, but elements of... And funny voices. Yeah, interesting instruments and voices he'd throw in there. So that was a piece of music that that my friend tonight, Harry Enfield, um, sort of switched him on to a different way of... A different way of hearing music, a different type of music you might be interested in hearing more of. Um, And I'm going to choose a piece that also has a cowboy theme... Um, if you're a Philistine, um, which is Rossini's William Tell Overture. Yes. Which is one of those pieces I think, you know, if, if certainly in my day, if you're going to get a, a young person interested in music, it's one of those pieces because yes. it's got a great tune and um, it's very accessible. And, you know, I would play a lot. I would sit on the arm of the sofa in the living room pretending to be a cowboy and, and listening to, to pieces of music like this. Although, of course, it's originally written about a, a Swiss crossbow man, but uh, most people know it from the music for The Lone Ranger. You say your parents didn't have much of a record collection, didn't listen to music much. It's the same, same with my, yeah. my parents. But you... But my aunts uh, did. My, my mother had one sister, I, and my dad had one sister, but my... M- Mother's sister loved opera and loved... It, it, quite a funny sort of thing, because I'd go up and stay with her in Marylebone, mm. and she'd play me um, Beyond the Fringe or Flanders and Swan or mm. a bit of opera, and, you know, we'd sit and listen to that. So I think that was that was probably... They're all things that, you know, I sort of forgot about when you were a teenager and things... But then when we moved to Hackney in, in 1982, I'd go to the library because I couldn't afford records, mm. so I'd go to the library to borrow them, and they didn't have that many. And I sort of gravitated towards my aunt's sort of stuff, so I'd get the Flanders and the Swan. That's how I came across Gerard Hoffnung, who we'll come mm. on to, and, and, uh, and opera, you know. So, so she, was a, she was a popular aunt? She was you, popular you enjoyed. With me. Very much so, yeah. yes. And 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 you remember enjoying that the music as she was playing it. Yes, it? yeah. It it felt. But if I went to stay with her, it was like I was the centre of attention. Mm. You know, I've got three sisters, so and my mum was busy with everyone. But you know, she would make us feel like we were the centre of attention for a couple of days, and so you'd sit on the floor and listen to all this, all this stuff. You, so you did get into classical music and it sounded like you were sort of uh, self-educated in some ways of finding it out for yourself. Yes. I've always loved Russian music and I love Rachmaninoff and I love his cello concertos. And uh, I recently met Ister Kader Mason and heard her immediately went on Spotify and I got completely hooked to this and I think this version which I think she plays with her brother Sheku and for those who don't know her what 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 does she play she's a pianist right so she's yeah. not the cellist no that's her brother oh right excellent um but it's 
it's my favourite bit of music at the moment. Yes, it's interesting with favourite music, yes. isn't it? That it changes and And if you listen to something moods. too much, you don't like it anymore. Yes. So I, I don't... You, you, that's one of the great things you learn in later life, isn't it? When you're young. Yes. <laughs> you know, you listen to the same damn thing again and again. Yes. Until you hate it. Even Born, Born for a Purpose by Dr. Alamantado. <laughs> <laughs> we were the other day just talking about All Around My Hat. Right. And I just started laughing. <laughs> I just like I, I just can't stop laughing. If I I hadn't thought about it for ages, and then I just started laughing because of how it was done on the first show. Yes, well, it was Bob part Fleming. of the, Bob Fleming's folk folk <coughs> <laughs> folk folking favourites. It was uh, just literally. I just got, got it into my head of you. Yeah, hello there. <laughs> and I, I lost it for about half an hour. <laughs> I, you know when something comes into your brain you haven't thought for a long time, and you think, "God, that was funny." Well, it was. It was always mm. one of the, the when we did the fast show live. It was yeah. always one of the, it was one of the highlights for us because there was a group of us on the stage. We're all singing together, and it's just a daft medley of folk songs of people with various different afflictions. <laughs> exactly. So I was coughing. Uh, Mark Williams was sneezing. <laughs> And, uh, and Paul Whitehouse, with his Tourette's character, was just randomly Arse. shouting, Arse! <laughs> always brought the, brought the house down. Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. I should have done some research. This weekend, I went to see my mum, and on the desk were some letters. I just saw them, and they had a label on that my dad had written. So, letters to Edward Enfield, who was my great-great grandfather mm. from Mendelssohn <laughs> <laughs> sold in 1985 but there were copies of them in yeah it. and I went blimey and then mum said are you ready for dinner <laughs> and I forgot <laughs> so you <laughs> but I'll go and have a look yeah I don't know how they knew each other familial they, connection they to Mendelssohn did. yeah mm. so do you you know in the in in the course of your life do you do you find time to listen to classical do you listen while you're driving do you listen to relax yeah i tend to listen well if i've got a long journey i tend to listen to long books um well we must get you back on the scala radio long books <laughs> program <laughs> but, but i don't want to hear about home, your long books especially if i'm stressed <laughs> out i love yes i am you know listening to piano and i put one of my you know, which is a bit of Alfred Brendel down. You see, while you were at university, Charles... Yes. ..with your punky things, I was... Well, or, or... Yeah, about the same time. I went to York University and um, one of my uh, flatmates, housemates, Steve, would play Schubert impromptus on the piano. Yeah. Rather than Quite I don't posh. want to live with monkeys. You'd have <laughs> jazz, which is one of my early yes. songs. So what you had posh soirees? Did you dress up in dinner jackets? Yes, and, and we did. <laughs> and say witty things to each other. Yes, we we risked all our money and games of whist and things like that. But I mean, uh, we were known as the Fascist Five, actually. Right. Because we were all men, and that was considered fascist at the time for five men to be sharing. <laughs> well, no, I mean you. I mean you are a bit younger than me, so you you yeah. you were sort of at, at university. Beginning of, 70s, beginning of the eighties, yeah. where political correctness 
was starting to be a big thing, and certainly yes. feminism was was it yes. was, was big. There were lots of. I remember. Well, I scanned the years where girls arrived at university in. Nineteen seventy-nine, with copies mm. of Ian Dury's new new boots and panties. Yes, and a couple of years later, that had gone from all their collections. That had absolutely disappeared, and it was sort of replaced by sort of fake reggae by UB40, and they'd sit cross-legged mm. on the floors, swaying to it, and it all got a bit dull. While you were at your Schubert recital, exactly with the Fascist Five. Yes, playing whist <laughs> and thrashing children. But I mean, you know, I mean, the, the thing was, yeah, I had a punk band and that had straight trousers. But I was, I would, you know, I took my classical records with me to university. Yes, I you, did listen to them. You didn't mind. You did everything. Oh you? yes, you I played was, punk. Yeah. You listened to classical music, and you <laughs> slept with ladies. <laughs> All at the same time. It was so impressive. And you still had time to get your hair peroxided. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, I keep on going on about how macho you were, Charlie. How macho? Well, you know, how, how impressed I was when you were young. But you couldn't drive, could you? No, I didn't learn to drive till I was in my mid-30s. Yes. I had no reason to, to drive. No. And I couldn't have afforded a car anyway. Yeah, OK. Yeah, that is why we had to hire the likes of you to help drive the van, the band around. Yes. Oh, yes, it was. And, yeah. you know, as our driver and roadie. And you, I remember when we went to Aberystwyth, you introduced us as well. Did I? Wearing a Russian hat. Oh. You would, I think you were doing a Russian character as well. Probably. In the 80s, you, you alluded to this before, we, we both ended up in Hackney on a council estate um, that Paul, who was working for Hackney Council... Had had got a flat there because we were hard to rent flats, and um, he let us know that uh, any squatters on the estate were going to be given council tenancy. Yes. So we rushed there, and we squ- we squatted a flat together, didn't we? Briefly. Well, uh, that was actually before that, but doesn't matter. That was opposite Lucinda Cinder's Foreshore, who's a famous camera woman now. Uh, anyway. She lived there, we lived there, and then when Paul gave the the thing saying Hackney... They had all these boarded-up flats on Morning Lane. That's and, right. And we no-one wanted to live there. Uh, no-one on the council list wanted to live there because it was considered a complete dump. Mm-hmm. So they were all just boarded up, and then Paul got word that the council were going to give amnesty to any squatters yes. in them as long as they took tenancy. So we all rushed along... And you had your flat, and, and I was next door with Ted. Yeah. Dave Cummings, his brother, Ted Cummings. And next door were Jack and Sid, three along. We had three. It was a bit like the Beatles in Hell. <laughs> but we didn't, you We know, didn't knock through. We, no, we but didn't. they were knock. actually, they were great flats. They really were great well-built, 1930s, solidly built brick flats. Yeah, and I remember the chap from, so we sort of broke in, which was easy. You know, just took the, the plywood off, yanked the lock off, went in, changed the lock, just the, the barrel, started doing stuff, and there was a knock on the door. And this chap, proper skinheads, you know, old-school skinhead bloke, saying, are you the squatters here? Yes, and he had his thing from the council. He said, right, um, can you give me your names and your this? And this is number 36 for Treat House, right, yeah. Right, um, if it was up to me, I'd put you all up against the wall and shoot you, but... <laughs> Uh, Hackney Council have different ideas, and you are now a tenant. <laughs> well, what people forget so, is in is in the nineteen seventies, the population of London was was shrinking 
people were leaving the city. Yeah. Uh, and so there was a huge amount of empty housing stock yeah. and, and the council would rather have someone in there who was paying a rent than it was just sitting empty or, or was squatted. So, No, it worked out very, very well for us. Yes. Because if we'd all been in different places, we probably would have drifted. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the vagaries of geographically where you end up that, and you end up near someone you knew before and so you stay friends with them and yeah. someone and move somewhere else pub, and you and you yeah you? yeah it was in those before telephones before mobile phones the pub um it would be you know you'd have to say okay friday night we're going to meet in this pub and that yeah. would be where all your mates went you had no chance to go anywhere else because there wouldn't be anyone there no and no way of changing arrangements but it seemed to work well seemed to work very well yeah yeah so through the 80s I started off being a singer in a band for the first half of the 80s. Paul was uh, working for the council and then became a plasterer. And in the second half of the 80s, I became a decorator. But through that time, you were much more dedicated to performing and comedy. I mean, you started at York University, didn't you? I started doing comedy at York University in my last term because... My friend Brian Elsley uh, thought I was funny, and I don't remember much else. He's quite frightening, Brian. He's Scottish. <laughs> and uh, we all find him a bit... He can be quite strict. And he said, I want... You should be doing a comedy show. You're going to do it with me. And I'd seen him <laughs> perform, and he was brilliant. He was really funny. He was a clown, basically, but a brilliant clown. And he looked a bit like Jonathan Miller, didn't he? I suppose he did a bit, yeah, but he had. He, I think he was the first person who'd had sort of a belief that I could do something mm. with and, my life. Uh, so, and uh, so I thought, well, I better. I'm going to do exactly. Was there what a, I a tradition of comedy at York University? No, there no. wasn't that sort of footlights. No, Oxford so we spent um, the new year of 1981 writing a show, a comedy show called Dusty and Dick's Lucky Escape from the Germans, <laughs> based on the great escape sort of thing and then we put it on at the university it was a play it wasn't mm. a, a, a thing and then the university said well we'll pay for you to take it to edinburgh for a week oh. and brian's dad had died quite recently and he said well i'll i'll guarantee another week we'll see if we can get someone to do it but mm. that's what i want to do with my money and so, so it being, I suppose, yeah. being the early eighties, it was mm. it was around about the time of the birth of alternative comedy. That was, yeah. Again, it, it was a, it was a sort of a punk thing of well, you can do it, you can do it yourself. Yes, it was. I mean, it was very much. I mean, we did that. Then we came to London. Then there was a circuit in London. We joined the circuit, but it was very sort of political. You know, it was just sort of height of Thatcherism and everyone... It was full of middle-class people and everyone going, isn't Thatcher awful? And everyone would go, yeah. And it that never interested me doing it that way. Um, we didn't really do political stuff. You were doing... So we kind of always... I mean, we didn't think, God, yeah, I want to be like this person or this person on of our peers. We wanted to be like the guys... You know, like Rick and Aid. Really. Mm. So you knew them from the circuit and from... No, I'd never met Rick and Aid. I didn't meet them for years. 
uh, I, until I was doing Saturday Night Live, I never met them. But, but they were the up, people that we aspired because yeah, of the but, young ones. But you ended up doing Saturday Night Live ultimately because of doing the, your live performance. Well, in fact, I ended up doing Saturday Night Live because I wrote a sketch for Spitting Image. Uh, I was doing voices for Spitting Image by then. So you got that from doing character comedy on stage? Uh, yes. I did, Yes. Let's just leave it at that. I met a woman <laughs> after a gig who said, you're funny, and I said, oh, thanks for saying that, you're wise, what do you do? She worked for Arena, right. you know, the, the arts programme, yeah. and it was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, someone involved in telly. And I persuaded her to introduce me to her boss, Anthony Wall, uh, and I persuaded him to introduce me to John Lloyd, who just started Spitting Image, and I persuaded John Lloyd um, to make me one of the voices. I was quite ambitious. It's funny that I remember someone years ago saying, you know, success is 10% talent and 90% drive. Mm. And I, I'm definitely with me. Yeah, I, mean, well, no, I, I knew that from, from, you know, right from the start, that you, you were fairly focused on, you wanted to do the... Live comedy, but it was a route to, to doing TV, and that's where mm. you wanted to end up. I guess so, yeah. Because, you know, Paul and I were just sort of drifting and dossing and doing the Saturday Night. Yeah. Other. Well, you came, you came about, well, you probably know this. <laughs> <I imagine. laughs> if it's to do with me, I, I might remember. <laughs> well, I suddenly, after the first series, so I did a sketch that featured Stavros on Spitting Image. Yeah. The script editor on the thing said, can we get that on on Saturday Night Live? Let's get it in, Kim Fuller. And so I started doing it. I started getting, you know, doing interviews. Suddenly I'm being interviewed. And a lot of the interviews are sort of saying, you know, who makes you laugh, expecting me to say, you know, uh, Simon Fanshawe, whoever. And I say, my mate Paul down the pub. And then Jeffrey Perkins, who came in the next year as the producer, said, this bloke, your mate Paul down the pub, who you bang on about in interviews, if he's so funny, do you want to see if he'll write for you? And, well, he didn't say it in that way. He said, would you like to see if he'd like to mm. write for you? So I asked Paul. And Paul said, blimey, H. You know, uh, it sounds good, but I know I won't do it. I'm going to need discipline. <laughs> But I could do it if Charlie did it with me, because he's disciplined. So yeah, well, we'd always, yeah. you know, we'd always made each other laugh. And I had, because I was writing novels at the time, yeah, unpublished were, novels. Yeah. I had bought a very early Amstrad, Amstrad word processor. Mm. So basically, Paul said to me, "Harry wants me to write for him. I don't know how to write. You've got a word processor. I haven't. Mm. Do you mind?" <laughs> Do you mind writing up my jokes for yeah. me, as it were? But no, we, you know, we found we actually worked very well together. Yeah, and, um, and I remember when you used to come in, I've talked to Jeff Posner about this, because there was a sort of, you know, there were staff writers at the time. There were writers, and everybody knew who writers were. And suddenly there were these two rather, rather grubby little men. <laughs> Jeff Posner, <laughs> these two... <laughs> Jeff Bosner being the director. The director of Saturday yeah. Night Live and, and Friday Night, yeah. yeah. No, and that was the first TV that, that Paul and I wrote, was for, for doing yeah. on Stavros and then loads of money yeah. on Friday Night Yeah, the one Night I'd Night. like to see, we did a sort of a band special, I think at the end of the last programme of Friday Night Live ever, 
we were like a Ronnie Hazelhurst band. Well, it was for a, it was for a sketch that Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie did, was which it? was yes, it was um, Stephen trying to teach Hugh how to play rock and roll, right. I think, and and so it was one of their sort of oh yeah, b- yeah. posh lecturer type one of, of sketches, yeah. and it ended up with him playing his music, and yeah, we thought it would be funny to to be that sort of old school BBC. Light Orchestra. entertainment band that you said. So yeah. yeah, we all had big headphones on. Yeah, and and roll neck jumpers. Yeah, and I think uh, I was conducting because yeah. I can't play an instrument. And I was, I was, I think I was playing drums, and Paul yeah. was playing guitar, <laughs> and uh, so and and yeah, and it was a very happy Hugh, moment. You was he, because he always loved playing. Yeah, he was playing the piano. Playing was his R and B piano. Is there a uh, record of that? Could I look it up on the YouTube? Well, it must be out there somewhere. Wow. Well, I say that. That was such a happy... That was the end of a series. It was 1988. I was 27. The characters had taken off. Mm-hmm. We were all sort of in employment. It's kind of that time when you go, oh, the world's your oyster. Yeah. You know, and then look what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice thinking about it. I don't really ever think about it, but actually... And that that thing at the end of that... I think that was the end of the show of the last Friday Live ever... And we all were just really happy. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, it was it was, it was great fun. Talking about TV, I asked you to pick a track that had some connections with your TV world. And in 2020, 2022, 2022, 2022, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the 100th anniversary of the BBC, you yes. made a show that we touched on earlier. You made a show. You say it wasn't necessarily a comedy, but uh, no, it there were comedy. funny bits in it, I must have to say. Yeah, what was it called again? It. It's called The Love Box in Your Living Room. And it was a sort of... Uh, it, it might a parody still be Adam, on iPlayer even now. It was a parody of, of Adam Curtis, who makes quite, yeah. quite in-your-face so what happened documentaries. Was, I mean, it's... Yeah, I, I mean, it's probably on the, on the iPlayer, but what happened was um, about seven years ago, we made, you wrote for... A history of the twos, story of the twos. It was called. yes, for anniversary of BBC Two. Yeah, um, and that was sort of fifty years, and that had been commissioned by Shane Allen, who was then mm. head of comedy. Then a few years later, he said, "It's going to be a hundred years of the BBC. Will you do that?" Now, with the story of the twos, it was based on Simon Sharma's story of the Jews that had just come out. So I was Simon Sharma, and then we did lots of little sketches, and it all fitted together nicely. When he said, will you do 100 years of the BBC, I said, no, you know, I haven't got an idea. It's too big. What do you have in? What do you not have in? And even with the twos, I remember um, bumping into a Lexi sale somewhere and he said, what are you up to? I said, I've just done this big, like, 50 years of BBC Two. He said, is stuff in it? And I went, "Uh, no. Oh. And, uh, stuff being his sketch show, sketch show Alexis sketch show <laughs> and I thought yeah I mean you know nothing's in it if you look at it that way the League of Gentlemen isn't it nothing nothing is in it so a hundred years of the whole BBC obviously couldn't represent anything other than uh, a mood really and but you, you had... Adam Curtis does mood right really really well 
and uh, you'll never quite see... And he, Because he's a polemicist. So instead of Simon Sharma, I thought, I can do this, tell a story, but it's more the story of Britain yes. as I see it in my head. And the first line I came up with was, this is when I went to Shane, I will do it. Actually, I've got an idea. It was just a sort of saying, in 1964, there was a coup and the Beatles assumed power and appointed Harold Wilson as their Prime Minister. <laughs> and I thought, OK, that's, that's how it felt to right. me. So it's autobiographical like that. That's how it felt to me in the 60s. And so if I do the whole thing like that, and it, it's just my head. Really. And, and Head shit. And I mean, head stuff. Head stuff. Head stuff. And you had uh, Paul Whitehouse playing John Reith. Yes. The... Well, was he the, not the founder of the BBC? How was it? How does well, uh, the first director first general. First director general. Mm. Playing this mad sort of electronic style instrument. What, what's that instrument called? It's the Troutonium. It is the first electronic uh, synthesizer. And it was. Uh, we put Paul's head on a guy called Oscar Sala. Right. Who played it. And uh, it was invented, I think, in about 1929 or 30 in Germany by a German and completely non-political German. And then in about 1934 or something, Goebbels discovered it. I thought, this is the biggest advance in music, oh. you know, since the invention of this, and it's been invented under us, and I want these mass-produced, these Troutoniums. <laughs> so they made little baby like a little synthesizer. And, I mean, do you know how they worked? Yeah, there's one wire, and you can see it in the footage we have. You can see, if he, on the YouTube, you can see Oscar Sala, right. the footage that I stole. But there's one wire and all sorts of weird, you know, weird Lots things you have to turn. It's an incredible machine. Mm. And the noise, it was used, Alfred Hitchcock, the, the noise of the birds in the birds oh, is yeah. a tritonium. So it can make the most amazing noises and it can also play music. Anyway... It fell into disrepute because it had been associated yes. with the Nazis. But it had nothing to do with the Nazis other than being taken up by it. Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. Charlie Higson and Friends podcasts were originally broadcast on Scala Radio in April 2021 and January 2023. Scala Radio is a radio station that celebrates classical music in all its shapes and sizes. We broadcast across the UK on DAB Digital Radio, on your smart speaker, on the Scala Radio app, and online at scalaradio.co.uk. Scala.